Judges chapter 13, if you want to join me there as we continue our study through the book of Judges together, we'll look at the 13th chapter tonight, and as we come to chapter 13, uh, if you've been reading ahead, or if you're somewhat familiar with the book of Judges, you know that we're about to launch into probably what most of us know is the most prominent uh, of the judges during this time in Israel's history, the life of Samson. Uh, and a great character study, Samson's life will be the next few chapters we'll see about him. And in a lot of ways, Samson is a life of contrast in many ways. He's someone who sadly had such great potential, but yet uh, didn't ultimately experience God's highest ideal and potential for his life because of some of the personal choices and some of the weaknesses in his life and uh, certainly just really some great lessons we'll see uh, in the days ahead. But chapter 13 records for us sort of the early stages of his life and how this uh, young man Samson really came from a very uh, godly family, a godly upbringing. Keep in mind the times are very dark at this time historically as we've been seeing in the book of Judges thus far, that characterizing mark that this was a time when the Bible says that everyone was just doing what was right in his own eyes. So there was no sense of there being a moral absolute or what was right or righteous. People were redefining what was moral. People were basically uh, into relativism and just really just whatever worked for you worked. And uh, there was no sense of really a, a consistent reverence for God among them as a people. And they've been in this cycle. We'll see the uh, seventh time now we go back into this cycle as we begin chapter 13 where the people would do evil in the sight of the Lord. They would turn away from him and do idolatry and they would abandon their relationship to God. And as a result of that, God would basically just uh, pull back his hand from upon their lives. He would pull back his favor from them and he would allow them to become weak and vulnerable and kind of in some ways convey to them, okay, if, if you don't want me in your lives, if you don't want me a part of your nation and you want to do things your way in your strength and with your approach, uh, then I'll graciously, uh, in a sense, bow out. I'll, I'll move out of the way. I'll let you try it for a while. And then, of course, they'd become very weakened and vulnerable in and of themselves. And typically, a foreign nation would then be raised up. God would allow sovereignly a nation to be raised up, one of their enemies, who would then subdue them and oppress them, put them into subjection and misery and servitude for a number of years until they would become exasperated by their misery. They would cry out to the Lord and then God in his mercy and in his grace would then send to them sort of a, a, a smaller version of what we would call a savior, someone who would come, one of these judges that God would raise up who was sort of like a, a military leader or a deliverer for the people. And he would set them free by God's anointing upon their life. He would then usually bring some sense of stability to the people for a time period, and they would turn back to the Lord, but then the cycle would just start all over again. And they would never seem to learn uh, the lesson of history and uh, they would go back into this same cycle and there was never any real traction or progress. There was just this constant cycle that went on continuously in our lives. Unless we be too hard on them, we have to sometimes look into the mirror because sometimes we, uh, sadly, can kind of become a little bit cyclical uh, in our own lives personally and even in our own lives spiritually. And I don't think that's God's ideal for us. 
Uh, God doesn't want us to stay in cycles. God wants us to break cycles. God's a God of breakthroughs, a God of deliverance, a God who wants to take us from glory to greater glory, a God who tells us that when we come to Christ, that old things pass away. They don't keep reoccurring. They pass away and all things become new. Uh, and we're to walk in victory and newness of life as the Bible tells us to. But uh, certainly we see this pattern and again we see it take place here in chapter 13. Note with me it tells us again and we know what's going to happen as soon as we read that word. Again, that's always the tragedy. The children of evil, Israel excuse me, did evil in the sight of of the Lord. And again, notice their evil that they did. What was the problem? That they did it in the sight of the Lord. The problem was is that they lost sense all the time of the consciousness of the awareness of God. That everything that we do is in the sight of the Lord. That there's nothing, the Bible says in, in Hebrews, that everything is naked and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And whether that's in our personal lives, our private lives, or whether from a, a, a society standpoint or a national level, everything we do is in the sight of the Lord. There's nothing that we do is hidden. There's nothing that we're involved in that God's not aware of. And that evil was offensive because it was done in the sight of the Lord. I wonder how many things, honestly, I would do wrong on occasion if I really had a conscious awareness in the moment that God's going to watch the way I'm going to speak rudely to one of my family members. Or God's going to watch the way that I respond to that person in traffic. Or you know, God's going to watch and see the way that, that, that I'm going to have an internal attitude, maybe about something that doesn't come outwardly, but it happens in my heart inwardly. And this typically is, is the struggle so often, is we fail to realize this reality. This was Moses' great mistake, remember, when he at that time killed one of the Egyptians and buried them in the sand when he tried to take God's calling upon his own life and do it in his timing and prematurely and he sensed God was calling him to be a deliverer so he tried to do it right away prematurely in his flesh and it says this it says he looked this way and he looked that way and then he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand he looked this way and he looked that way his problem was he didn't look that way <laughs> he didn't look up and that's so often the mistake that we make and it's the error that we make even on a national level, our own country. You know, We fail to realize the things that we do that are offensive and a stench in the nostrils of God. God sees everything that we're doing. He sees what we're doing as a people, as a nation and the children of Israel as they did this evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice the pattern as always, the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years again take notice God as a consequence as a measure of discipline and judgment against that nation the nation of Israel his people a nation that was blessed of God that God was among and working among God allowed them to be delivered over to the attack and the oppression of a foreign nation of an ungodly people who would then put them to servitude and rule over them when that was not God's intention for them. But this was part of the consequence. And it says the Lord delivered them this time into the hand of the Philistines, notice, for 40 years. That's a long time. 40 years to be in that position of being oppressed by a foreign people, by one of their enemies. This is the longest recorded time 
in these cycles that they went through of oppression and servitude where for 40 years now we've read 18 years we've read you know less than 10 years on a, this is 40 years now but again perhaps in some ways this is the seventh time this cycle has come around and uh, it seems that when we start to err many times that can have a compounding effect and so this time god for 40 years lets them in that condition now here's the thing as well is part of the reason that they're in that condition for 40 years the result of sort of the compounding effect of their evil and continuous consequences of wrongdoing or and here's the insightful thing you may take notice if you've been with us studying through judges from the beginning this time there's no mention of them crying out to the lord that's very peculiar I'm on the other occasions, they're in servitude for 18 years. And then it says, and the people would cry out to the Lord and God couldn't take the the condition and his heart was moved with their misery. And then God would answer and raise up a deliverer. In this situation, there is no recorded mention. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but there's no recorded mention of the people coming to a place of brokenness and repentance and crying out to the Lord. So I don't know. Could it be that they become that dull hearted? That they become that sort of content with the, the substandard conditions that their hearts had become so cold and apathetic and weighed down by their sin and evil that their hearts were that callous that they didn't even cry out to God for deliverance. But God in his pity felt so bad for them that after 40 years he started to work on their behalf because he couldn't stand the condition that they were in well it says they were delivered in the hand of the philistines and we'll see a lot more uh in the uh, certainly chapters and books ahead the philistines will become a very popular perennial enemy of israel all the way through the time of david's reign Uh, The Philistines, again, they dwelled on the shoreline area of what we often refer to today as the Gaza Strip in Israel. They're along the Mediterranean uh, coast. They were a sea people who around the 12th century migrated from Greece to this sort of coastal plain and they gradually worked themselves up northward and ultimately established sort of a a territorial stronghold in this area of the southern part of Israel where we call again sort of the the Gaza Strip area and they established sort of a pentopolis or kind of like five key cities we'll read about they'll come up frequently Uh, they'll be referred to as Ashdod and Gaza Ashkelon and Gath and Ekron and we'll see a lot about the Philistines they were a very advanced people in technology particularly in the ability to smelt iron and because of that they had a lot of advanced weaponry before a lot of other people did so because of this they were a very strong military force and caused a lot of problems for Israel throughout their history for many years and generations to come. Like I said, all the way through to the time of David, we still see the Philistines causing problems. Well, verse 2 tells us now what God's sovereign plan was to begin breaking the stronghold of the Philistines. It says, now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites. Now, the Danites, before the people of Dan moved up north, their initial allotment of territory, remember, was to the southern area. And it says this particular family that's going to be referred to was dwelling in the area of Zorah. That's about 15 miles west of Jerusalem. So we're in the south, sort of to the west of Jerusalem. And there was a certain man in that area whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and had no children. So we're now introduced to this couple, of course, who are going to be the parents of who we know as Samson, the deliverer that God is going to raise up during this time. 
And we're introduced to this couple who it says the wife was barren. She was unable to conceive and to have children. Now, this is the only time we find this. Remember, this was a struggle for Abraham and Sarah. Uh, we saw before. This is the same struggle John the Baptist's parents have when we get to the New Testament. And on occasion, we find these references. And we have to understand again, even though I'm not saying this is not a great grief in today's culture, in that culture... The grief and the agony and the heartache of being unable to bear a child was magnified tenfold. Their perception of children and being able to have children to carry on the family name and the family line and to pass on the inheritance to, and the Bible says children were uh, a heritage from the Lord. It was, it was the most valuable and precious thing for a woman in her mind. The greatest fulfillment of her life was not to succeed in the world or have this fantastic career, but it was to be a mother was to give birth to a child and to be able to raise a child. Every woman, this was the ideal, especially in the heart of every Jewish woman. So to be barren and unable to conceive was a horrific grief. In fact, it was even believed by many, though certainly not true, it was believed by many that this was, in a sense, an indication that your life was cursed somehow. And some even taught that somehow this was the scourge of, of Yahweh God upon your life. And, and people were left under these guilt-ridden feelings that they couldn't have a child because somehow some curse was upon their life. So this was a great grief. And what I want you to understand is this couple lived with a constant sense of disappointment. I mean, just chronically in their lives, there was this ongoing disappointment of some desire that they longed to see fulfilled never came to pass. And there was always this yearning to see something happen, this yearning for life, this desire to see some dream come to pass that they had been longing for, no doubt endeavoring, trying for, and yet it was constant disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. Listen, a little bit of disappointment can be pretty difficult for all of us, but chronic disappointment continuous disappointment where you live in that condition where day after day turns into month after month turns after year after year of some unfulfilled dream of some constant disappointment the grief no doubt in the heart of these two people as they were in this condition and yet the beautiful thing is we see that in a time when it was very dark in Israel's history there were two godly people who we see are praying people and who are trusting God and wanting God's best. And again, we don't have to be contaminated by our culture. We'll see, these were two very godly people who ultimately become the parents to give birth to Samson. So here they are, they've had no children. Well, verse 3, some good news is about to come into their marriage. It says, an angel, the angel, excuse me, of the Lord appeared to the woman. And we'll ultimately see that here again, this angel of the Lord is a reference to none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This chapter specifically spells that out. So this angel of the Lord, they don't know it yet, appears to the woman, to the wife, and says to her, Indeed now, you are barren and have borne no children, and imagine how this must have resonated in her heart and her ears, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So she hears, no doubt, this answer to her prayer. She receives now a prophetic word 
a prophetic word from this messenger of God. At this point, they don't know who this is. She recognizes this is some man from God, a divine messenger. She's not 100% certain, but she knows that this is a supernatural encounter. And she's receiving this promise from God through prophecy that she is going to conceive and have a son. God was going to bring about a miraculous healing to a situation that looked like it would never change. God was going to bring a change where change seemed absolutely impossible. And, and they had tried so many times. And when you try again and try and try and try and pray and try and try and try, ultimately you just feel like, okay, this is just, it is what it is. It's just impossible. It's never going to change. There's no way it can happen. It is absolutely impossible. And you know what? To some degree, the answer to that is yes. Because there are things that are impossible. And the reality, however, we always have to factor is, but yet the Bible says, but with God, nothing will be impossible. So if God chooses by his sovereign plan and will, and I can't dictate and always explain how that is and when he works and why in some but if God chooses to get involved, what is impossible can suddenly become possible because with God, nothing will be impossible and all things are possible. And so now you can imagine the joy that comes to her heart as she hears this. This reminds me of Proverbs thirteen twelve, where it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's like a tree of life. Well, that proverb is so true, isn't it? You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If there's anything you in your life that you have been, or maybe sorry, you're 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 hoping for, it's a dream. It's something you're longing for. Some and you're you're hoping for it, but it's just deferred. It's deferred. It's not happening. It's not coming. It's not happening. It's not coming. The Bible says that actually can can cause a heart to just grow sick. You just you literally feel sick inside. It just causes your heart to be so infected with grief and disappointment. But it says, but when the desire comes, it's like a tree of life. It's, it's like a rejuvenating experience. And this must have been the experience for her as she heard this. Now verse 4 says, therefore, further instruction. He says, please, he tells the mother, be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin, notice, begin, not completely do it, but Samson would begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So she's informed that she's going to have a male child, a son, and that that child had a special calling upon his life. And so because of that, there were certain instructions that she was to follow as a mother because what she did as a mother would have direct influence upon the child. She's informed here that this child was going to be used by God to begin to bring deliverance out from under the Philistines as a deliverer and that this child was to be a Nazarite, it says there, verse 5, to God from the womb. Now, again, remember, the Nazarite, we studied this all the way back. Numbers chapter 6 is your reference for that. Remember, the Nazarite vow was something traditionally that was a voluntary vow that any person could make as a way of dedicating himself to God for a time. And this was a vow that you could make in a voluntary way. It usually was for a set time period. It could be for a week. It could be for a month. It could be for a three-month stint. 
And basically, the idea of the word Nazarite means to consecrate or to separate. And what basically you were doing, you took a Nazarite vow, is it was a, a, a decision a person would make where they would basically make a personal dedication of their life to choose to live set apart to God for a set period of time or for a set purpose. And remember, that came together with three things they were to abstain from. They were to not touch or have anything to do with anything of the vine or the vineyard, so no drinking of wine or fermented drink. They weren't even supposed to touch grapes or the grapevine. They were to abstain from that. They were secondly to abstain from any cutting of their hair. They were just to let their hair grow. So again, she's told no razor shall come upon his head. That was a part of the Nazarite vow. Secondarily, they were to let their hair grow. We'll see this becomes a part of, of Samson's experience. And then thirdly, remember, they were to have no contact with anything that was dead. Uh, no contact with dead bodies or corpses of, of any things. Now, we're going to see ultimately, sadly, that Samson violates all three of these things. Uh, as we go forward in his life. But he was to be a Nazarite to God, dedicated, set apart, a special calling on this young man's life. He was consecrated to God. But the thing that's unique is most people did this voluntarily and for a set time. God here sovereignly says, I want this child to be a Nazarite from his birth all the way through the entirety of his life. He was to live fully consecrated to God because God had special plans and purposes for his life. So this was a unique situation. It seems John the Baptist as well received this same calling from God also in his life that he was to live in that way also. And this was because of the purposes that God had for this young man's life. Now, I want you to take notice of something here, which I think is important that the scripture lays out for us. Notice that she is being told these things about her son and she's not even pregnant yet. Right? At this point in time, she's being told prophetically, you're going to conceive, though you're barren, and you're going to have a son. She's just getting a message at this point coming from heaven across her radar screen to let her know and she's getting instructions. But here's what I want you to see. This isn't even a woman who is pregnant or who's conceived this is preconception preconception god already knows about the existence of this life he's already aware of the sex of the child and he already knows the full plan and purpose all the intentions that he has for the child again i think this is another great you know encouragement of the whole pro-life belief that we should hold as people again where god again this isn't just once the child's even in the womb this is preconception this is even prior to pregnancy god says i know that life will exist i know the sex of the child and i know every plan and purpose that i have for that life and this should remind us of the value, the sanctity of life that God puts upon every life. It doesn't matter the situation or the circumstances. Quite frankly, at the end of the day, that is irrelevant. Every life has value to God. And it has purpose. And here, we have no idea what the plans and purposes are for lives. God has plans and purposes for lives before they're even conceived. God told Jeremiah the same thing. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I set you apart as a prophet unto the nations. And here, what a great, great reminder of the value God puts upon life. So this great calling on this young man's life, someone who has great potential, but sadly, as I said, is ultimately going to waste that potential because he doesn't fulfill the highest call of God and the ideal of everything God intended for him. So this news comes. 
The mother's informed. This is what's going to take place. And because of what his life will be, she is told you need to abstain from these things. Well, verse 6, you know what she's going to do. She's got the best news she's ever got. It says she came and told her husband, saying, a man of God. Again, she doesn't know who this is yet, but she knows it's someone who was sent from the heavens. A man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. So she, oh, we forgot to exchange contact info. I didn't get his email. I, I don't have his number. We can't text him. I, I just, But I'm telling you, he came and he told me these things, but I don't know who he was or where he came from, but I know it was from God, she says. And he said to me, she recounts to her husband, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 8, then Manoah, her husband, prayed to the Lord. That's a wise thing to do as a husband and as a dad. As soon as you find out, just pray. Makes child raising much, much better, I tell you that. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God who you sent come to us again. And I love this. Teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. So he believes the prophetic word. He doesn't doubt it. He believes this is a prophecy from God. And the first thing he does is he realizes, Oh, my goodness, this is an incredible stewardship. This is an incredible responsibility. God's going to entrust the child to us and God has a plan for this child. God has a purpose for this child. So he realizes ultimately I'm just God's steward here as a parent and as a dad. So he says, please, would you send this man, this messenger back to us and, and can he teach us more about how to raise this child? Can he explain to us further what we're supposed to do? I think this is a great heart attitude. This father is asking God for direction how to guide the child that he's been entrusted to. How to guide his child into God's plan and God's purposes. Look, you know, gentlemen, this is a wise way to pray and to realize the stewardship that we have with each and every one of our children because God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. You know, I, I have a firm conviction that it is not my job to, to mold my children. Let me explain what I mean by that. I believe it's my calling to unfold my children not to mold them to mold them gives the idea that they were born and now I got to shape everything about their life and I need no I believe that like Samson like Jeremiah like everyone that God knows my children he has plans and purposes for their life he has a calling upon their life and it's my job as a parent yes to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord but to train them in the way in which they should go in some ways the way in which they should go because what it may be for one daughter may not be for the other daughter. And to realize, yes, the fundamentals of giving them an awareness of God and helping them serve the Lord. Yeah, I understand that. I'm not negating that. But my primary calling is not to say, well, it'd make me really proud if, you know, if they become that. And vicariously, I just, you know, I was a knucklehead and didn't accomplish this. So I want them to do it. So I'll, no, my job is to unfold them. And to unfold who they're supposed to be and what God's called them to be and just pray it's not a missionary to Africa. You know what I mean? Just sort of say, oh, Lord, I'll unfold them, but if I, uh, oh, does that say missionary? No, no, I'm not folding that. Put that back in there. You know, just, but that's our, our calling is to say, God, 
You have a plan for their life. I'm just a steward for a time to prepare them like a quiver to launch them out into the world. And I love this example here from a parental perspective. Teach us what we shall do for the child that shall be born. Teach us, Lord. We don't, you know, they don't come out, they don't come out with a manual, right? Teach us, Lord. Teach us how to parent. Show us what to do, how to raise this child for your glory and good purpose. And again, take notice the constant inference here that what the mother did or didn't do as well, she was to abstain from all these things, though her son was going to be a Nazarite. But why? Because he was a special Nazarite child from the womb. Anything she did prior to the time that he got out of the womb had a direct effect upon him. And I think, again, this is a good reminder here that as parents, our decisions and actions impact our children. And many times a lot more than we really realize, and especially spiritually. So she had a, a measure of responsibility to abstain from these things, to live a certain way while the child was being developed until she gave birth. Well, when we pray, and certainly pray these kind of prayers, verse 9 says, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, this father. And the angel of God came to the woman as she was sitting out in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day, he's back. He's just now appeared to me. Remember, you prayed he'd show up again. He's back. Hurry up. Come on before he leaves. So Manoah rose and followed his wife out to the field. And when he came to the man... He said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, let your words come to pass. Notice again the faith. Let your words come to pass. He's just saying, Amen. I, I Let what you've said be fulfilled. I believe it will be. But what will be the boy's rule of life and his work? He's asking, Can, can you give me more insight? What will be his rule of life and the, the work that he should pursue? And just again, seeking for more Direction in the midst of this, talking in more of a dialogue as he has this opportunity now once again with the messenger himself who's come to his wife. Now, I, I want to draw your attention to, to something as well here. As I think some of the things in this chapter give a great example from family things and parental things, and I think you know, here's this beautiful, godly family in the midst, like I said, of a time when culturally it was very dark. This was a very dark time in Israel's history, morally, spiritually. But yet notice, this family is living for God. They're serving God. They're functioning properly. They're a praying family here. And even just the way that they're operating merrily, I think it's very beautiful to see. Do you notice how this wife continuously keeps coming to her husband and including him in the process to help her in sorting out the will of God. As soon as the messenger comes, she goes to her husband. She shares what's going on. Her husband prays. The messenger comes back. Right away, what does she do? She goes back. She gets her husband again. She brings her husband back. And then her husband begins dialoguing. And I think this is a very beautiful example from a marital perspective because she keeps bringing the matter to her husband and honoring his spiritual covering and his spiritual leadership within the home life in a proper way and allowing him by deferring to him. She keeps deferring the matter back over to him. And in so doing that, she's letting him take responsibility for the situation before God and work out the matter between him and the Lord on behalf of their family. 
He's the one that's praying. He's the one advocating. He's the one communicating. And I think this is a very beautiful example of, of quite frankly, in my estimation, what I consider a healthy functioning marriage. When this didn't happen, problems happened. That's called the Garden of Eden. When Eve decided to function on her own and then instead of including her husband or deferring to her husband, she in a sense it seems influenced and directed her husband. It says she partook and then gave to her husband. Here honey, I made a decision and here you go along with it. And he passively just in a sense cooperated. Rather here you see this this inversion of the opposite going on here. I think this is a beautiful example seen in this family. She keeps coming to her husband saying, listen, you know, she's deferring it over to him. He's taking responsibility to work out the will of God in this matter on behalf of the family. And Manoah, you notice, keeps taking the lead in this situation spiritually. So Manoah is talking now to this messenger asking more questions about this boy's rule of life and his work. Verse 13, so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, he says, let her be careful. This is important, he says. Numero uno, make sure she honors the restrictions that I've given to her and make sure that she's faithful to that. You make sure that you help her to stay accountable and to observe those things. Again, he repeats, she may not eat anything that comes from the vine nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. And all that I commanded her, let her observe. So you help her in that process, lead her and help her to be accountable with it. And Manoah then said, verse 15, to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. Again, they like any nice people, a Jewish couple, they want to feed him. You just told us we're going to have a child. Hang out. We want to get a goat ready for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, if that's what your heart is, you want to show gratitude to God as a way of commemorating. Again, the burnt offering, remember, was the consecration offering, the dedication offering, which fit well with this idea of their lives being fully dedicated over to God with this Nazarite son. If you want to offer a burnt offering, he emphasizes you must offer it to the Lord. Your worship, your honor must be given to the Lord. And then we're told parenthetically here in the scripture, the Holy Spirit tells us for Manoah, notice, did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Again, a a beginning of the inference that this was actually an encounter with this situation, the angel of the Lord being, as I said, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus a time when Jesus shows up in form prior to being born in Bethlehem and living to us, living among us as a man. Well, verse 17 says, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? That when your words come true, notice not if, when your words come true, there's faith again. When your words come true, tell us what's your name so that we may honor you. We want, to, we want to send you gratitude, a thank you card at least. I mean, you, you told us we're going to have a child. When your words come true, who are you? Tell us, what's your name? And the angel of the Lord said to him, verse 18, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Interesting, that word wonderful there, he uses as a description of his name. Remember, a name particularly, again, in this ancient culture, the name was very representative of a person's character, of their nature. 
Your name is your identity. It is to this day still. When, when you say someone's name, there's an indication of, okay, I, I, that identifies who that person is. So he's saying, tell us what your name is. And he says, why do you want to know my name seeing it is, he says his name, wonderful. That word wonderful, the term that's used there in the Hebrew literally means wondrous. The idea is full of wonder or it might also be translated incomprehensible or marvelous. Now, of course, we have the benefit of knowing the entirety of the canon of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 gives us a prophecy of Jesus. And there it tells us of Jesus, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. So again, notice there's this subtle inference here, this subtle little revelation as this is desirous of Manoah to know that this perhaps seems to very likely be, as I said, a, an appearance of Jesus here uh, prior to his incarnation as a man when he comes fully in Bethlehem revealing these wonderful things. Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and he offered it upon the rock to the Lord. So he prepares now a sacrifice. And look at this. He had no clue this was coming. And he, that's this personage, he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife were looking on. And it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame in the altar. Now, human beings don't ascend through flames without burning up. So this one whose name is wonderful does a wondrous thing supernaturally and ascends in the flame and disappears out of their sight. And notice when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. They, they were overwhelmed. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then look, Manoah, the Holy Spirit tells us, knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He realized, oh my goodness, this wasn't just some man of God, some prophet sent, or even just an angelic messenger. This was an encounter with divinity. Oh my goodness. And again, Exodus 33 said that if anyone saw God, that they couldn't see God and live. That's why, look at verse 22, you can tell what happened. Manoah said to his wife, Oh no, we shall surely die, for we've seen God. So he realizes, and rightly so, in a sense of being overwhelmed in reverential fear, oh my goodness, we just had an encounter with God and a person can't see God and live. Oh my goodness, we're going to die. We're going to die. We've just seen God face to face in some ways. He's saying, but his wife said to him, she has a little common sense, if the Lord desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So she says, dear, there's a chain of command, but there's also the help of counsel. And listen, if God was going to kill us, I don't think he would have just told us all these things about having a child and received an offering if he planned to just kill us right after he told us that. Oh, that's, that's good, honey. How about we keep that between you and I? But then it gets recorded in the Bible, right? <laughs> the best-selling book on all the planet. Well... 
Praise God for giving us the good wives he does, right? Verse 24, so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And that's what we want when our children grow, the blessing of the Lord to be upon their life. In verse 25, and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him and Mahan and Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So as he begins to grow and develop, we read here that the spirit of the Lord began to move, notice, upon him. Again, this, these references we have, even in the Old Testament, of what we often refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit not just being in a person, as we know it as a New Testament experience through Jesus and the New Covenant, but here the Spirit coming upon a person for empowerment, for enablement. Even as we can experience that, Acts 1.8 tells us the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives, a third of three experiences that we can have with the Spirit. And oftentimes we see this happening in the Old Testament where the Spirit would come upon a person for a time to anoint them for ministry, to empower them for their service. And look, this is where Samson's strength came from. The next chapter says he's going to tear a lion apart with his hands. A lot of times you read, you know, read things about Samson in books or you see pictures or cartoons and there's this depiction of Samson, of course, with his long hair because he's a Nazarite, but he's got like these bulging muscles, you know, because there's all these inferences of him being so strong. Quite frankly, it's very likely that Samson looked like Pee Wee Herman. We, we don't have no indication that he was someone at Gold's Gym pumping iron. The reason Samson was so mighty and strong was because of what you read right there that the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon his life. It was the Spirit of God that gave him the power and the strength to do the great exploits and the things that he did because the Bible tells us not by might nor by power but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think through his power that works in us. Again, it's the power of his spirit working in and through our lives. That's why the command of Ephesians chapter 5 is so vital for all of us as well, where it says, be not drunk with wine, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way a person comes under the influence of alcohol, it affects how they talk and act and think and behave. God says, look, in the same way, take that analogy, I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit, where the Spirit would be upon your life, stirring in your life, directing you, steering you, using you, and allowing you to fulfill God's purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for...